From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. How you doing? Good. First off, we got to talk about Sepp Kuss, right? The American who won the stage of the Vuelta a España. This kid is really great. He rose really well in the Tour de France. Racing season is almost over. The third grand tour of the season is the Vuelta a España, the tour around Spain. Sepp Kuss, American, won a stage in the mountains of the Vuelta. Wow. Where's he from? Where'd he train? Do you know? I think Durango, Colorado, but don't quote me on that. Maybe Anne-Marie Drolet knows. Anne-Marie, do you know where he's from? I have no idea. (laughs) I wish I knew. You have introduced our special guest, Anne-Marie Drolet, who is mechanic with LA Metro Bike Share. Hey, Anne-Marie. How's it going? You know, she's been on the show. You've been on the show in the past answering questions, and we got another email with a maintenance question. I wonder if you want to jump in and take a stab at that. Yeah, absolutely. So the question I got was, can I adjust my braking technique to get my brakes to wear out evenly? Because it seems like I always wear one out before the other. So I'm assuming for this question that you have rim brakes, because you can actually see the wear on the brake pads for rim brakes, as opposed to disc brakes or coaster brake. I'm assuming also that these are caliper brakes. With these, I would say the first thing is to check the wheel and see if the rim is bent or if it's out of true, because this will obviously cause uneven wear on your brake pads because your wheel is kind of wobbling back and forth. And also, if it's not set into the dropouts correctly and perfectly straight in the frame, it's going to wear out unevenly. Another thing could be the actual brakes themselves, of course. For caliper brakes, they're actually really easy to center. So if they're off center, then you're going to see uneven wear there. And if you want to recenter them, there's usually a lateral adjustment screw on the caliper brakes. It's really easy to adjust. I think usually it's a three millimeter hex key. What I usually do is I'll just recenter it with the mounting bolt that's at the center of my rim brakes. It's super easy. You just need one tool, a five millimeter hex key or Allen key. You can look at if your brake pads are not installed correctly. So maybe they're upside down or the right one's on the left one. It should say on the brake pads. Do people know what caliper brakes are? Just Googling caliper brakes and you'll see all the different types. Dual pivot is a really common one. I feel like most people with road bikes probably have dual pivot if they don't have disc brakes. If you don't know what it looks like, definitely Google. You're totally right. Go to the internet if you have a question about how to adjust something, but just kind of figuring out and playing with it can really solve a lot of problems. And if you do then get stuck, then what do you do? Go to a bike store? Yeah, I would prefer to just ask someone who has more knowledge and then they can show you. All right. Well, thanks, Anne-Marie, for that answering that listener question. What else is in the news? You're in the news, Taylor. Bike the Strike was in the LA Times this week and also on CNN. The writers have been on strike from the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers since May, and the actors join them. And every Thursday, we've been doing a Bike the Strike, where we meet at one of the strike locations, one of the studios, Amazon, Netflix, Warner Brothers, Disney, Universal, and ride around to all the different striking locations. And so we've been seeing all parts of LA. It's really been a tour de strike. 
Well, it's part of how you're winning because the producers are not out there on bikes, that's for sure. But uh, it's a really good group of riders, actually, Nick. It's a real mix of people, writers, crew members, actors. All the labor, all the working people are banding together to really fight for what we believe are fair wages and compensation for the work that we do. Now we go on to our first interview, which is yours, Taylor. I don't know if our audience knows who Jeff Speck is. He is one of the real leaders in the new urbanism field, and he's a consultant for cities about how to make streets safe for walking and biking. He's the co-author of the seminal book, Suburban Nation. And he also wrote The Walkable City, which really explains why we want a city that's safe. People want to walk in their city, and he connects walking and biking together. He also wrote the book, The Walkable City Rules, which is sort of ammunition for bicycle advocates. We've been doing a lot of stories on the show about safe streets, and it's important we remind ourselves the biggest reason why more people don't ride bikes is because they don't feel it's safe. And so if we don't have safe streets for people that are walking or biking, we are never going to get more than five or 6% of the people on bikes running errands. And so Jeff is really a leader in the field. And this was a fun interview. I was really glad to sit down and talk with him. When I first started becoming a bicycle advocate, I first read the book, Suburban Nation. And that kind of told us all that was wrong with America. And then the next book I read was Walkable City. And that kind of showed us a path out of all the stuff that was wrong with America. And our guest today is Jeff Speck, and he's the author of both of those books. Jeff, welcome to Bike Talk. Hey, it's great to be with you. And I always have to tell people the walkable city is also the bikeable city, but it's not in the title of my book. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that because we often do conflate the two. Well, I make the point that a city that's safe for biking is also safe for walking. <laughs> and it's important in my audiences because... Yeah. I'm always quick to remind people that actually the statistics are very clear that when you design a place for bicycles, to accept bicycles, to include bicycles in the multimodal streetscape, you actually make the streets safer for all users. Mm -hmm. The chance of your being killed by a cyclist as a pedestrian is less than your chance of being killed by a vending machine. So it's important to understand that what bleeds may lead, but it isn't statistically justified to be particularly fearful about the interface of pedestrians and cycling. The Walkable City was written in 2012, and I think it's in its 10th edition now. What has changed in the editions as you've gone forward now that we're in 2023? Well, it's not the 10th edition, although I don't know how that works anymore because they're constantly printing, but it's its 10th anniversary edition. Oh, 10th so anniversary. It came out, came out in 2012. Yeah. And because it basically been the best-selling planning title during that interim, so what I was given the opportunity to do was to write about 50 more pages to add to the end of the book as a 2022-2023 update. I wrote 100 pages and convinced my publisher to add 100 new pages to the book, which discusses a lot of the things that have happened in the last 10 years, a lot of things I've learned in the last 10 years, but one of the new chapters is on cycling. I predicted when the book was written, in fact, that what was going to change the most in the ensuing decade was the best practices that we pursue when dealing with bicycles in the streetscape. And that did change dramatically. When we design new projects, we are typically able to give them just as good bike infrastructure as Berlin had in the 90s. Yeah. You probably recall 
if you're an avid cyclist, you probably had an experience in the last century visiting Europe, the Netherlands, or anywhere pretty much in Northern Europe and experiencing the designated and luxurious bicycle infrastructure where cyclists were out of the road, right? right? Up on the sidewalk edge. You had to learn as a pedestrian to look both ways and avoid being hit by bikes, but you learned that pretty quickly. And the main thing was that the cyclists were truly protected from traffic by being up out of the street. Now, when we do new projects in Boston, when we do new projects, we are expected by the municipality, if they're at all progressive or large enough to be up on best practices, we're expected by the municipality to provide bike lanes. Finally, they're out of the street, up on the curb. And of course, the standard now is to have a nice curb, whether a full curb or like a half curb, like they do in Copenhagen, maybe a three-inch curb, right. get the bikes out of the street, then have a zone for trees and plantings and other things, and then have the pedestrian sidewalk before you get to the faces of the buildings. It's only been quite recently that we haven't been putting the bike lanes in the door zone because yeah. for a number of reasons. I'm doing a project in Utah right now where half of the bike lanes are out of the street, but half of them are in the door zone because the fire department has minimum clear zones, right? 26 feet between objects for preposterous world-ending conflagration. And that means that we have to use bike lanes in that case to widen the area between parked cars, for example. But that's the rarity. I think most municipalities now have realized that the lives saved by separating bicycles will make the lives lost to slow fire response a statistically insignificant factor right. in the future of their cities. Right. You talk in the book also that in many cases, we know what to do to make a walkable city and we know what to do to make a safe street city, but we don't have the political leadership or the political will to do that. There's a project in Northampton, Massachusetts, Main Street, and there's a project here in Los Angeles, Fountain Avenue, where we're really looking at reconfiguring those streets and making them safer and by adding a protected bike lane, not just a bike stripe, which is what they often do in Los Angeles. But there's an immense amount of pushback. Just today in the newspaper, there was letters to the editor about how this is a dumb idea. And so how do we turn the conversation around to get NIMBYs or to get ignorant neighbors understanding the benefits of this kind of world. Often the problem is bad polling and a public process that's not truly representative of who the public is. We are finding the path paved for us to succeed in promoting, in implementing much better planning around bicycling, walking, and everything else. Anyway, the younger people thank me for writing Walkable City, but there's another book called Walkable City Rules, and it's 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Step 54 is Avoiding Common Cycling Pitfalls. And I list a number of things. Us versus them thinking, ignoring the fact that most of us are cyclists and drivers and pedestrians all at the same time. Right. Zero-sum thinking. This gets to an answer to your question. We usually find ways to improve bicycle infrastructure without eliminating driving infrastructure, or I should say, without dramatically reducing the throughput of vehicles, without dramatically reducing parking. In fact, we find ways to do it by looking at the whole street network and not just one street or two streets. I talk about helmet laws. The one city that kind of failed at creating a public bike share system was Seattle. And that's because Seattle has a helmet law. Oh. And the one great set of statistics we have, but they're very sad statistics, are from New Zealand, where they began enforcing a bicycle helmet law in 1994. And what they achieved with that was they cut the number of cyclists in half and they cut the rate at which cyclists were being injured. They doubled that rate. 
Wow. So that's what the strength in numbers experience tells us that helmet laws are counterproductive. Do you want people wearing helmets? Sure. Do I wear a helmet? Sure. But we don't want to see helmet laws. Right. But one of them is called bad polling. And I think this gets to the point of, you know, who's participating in the public process and how. I'll do a mini reading for you. In 2017, the city of Des Moines began to aggressively pursue a multimodal street design strategy after many years of tentative measures. As recently as three years prior, the situation there was similar to what one still finds in many American communities. The city leadership, city staff, and a robust cycling community all wanted better bike infrastructure, but felt unable to pursue it because, quote, public opinion was against it. How is public opinion measured? By online polling, which asked such questions as, do you want to see new bike lanes on Ingersoll Avenue? People self-selected to participate in the polls, and as with most online forums, the grumpiest naysayers showed up in droves, voting early, often, and against. Right. right. Polling does not count as polling unless it's random, cross-sectional, and not limited to those who seek it out. Public meetings are often the same way. People who say, I don't want that bike path. I don't want that rails to trail going by my house because someone's going to come from the city and steal my television on their bicycle, which, by the way, I've heard twice in public meetings. When someone says something like that, you have to give them the statistics about how actually their home's going to be worth X percent more. More, right. As statistically shown, their home's going to be worth considerably more with the bike lane near it. It's the responsibility of responsible city leadership to look at what benefits the whole and not just what the noisy people who show up demand. Your audience is probably aware of the Shero discussion. One of the chapters in my book, I have two chapters in Walkable City Rules that are just about cycling. One of them runs through all the different facilities that are available. So there's a rule about rails to trails. There's a rule about bike boulevards. There's a rule about cycle tracks. Another one about how to build them right. A rule about using conventional lanes and building lanes properly. But the rule 62 is do not use Shero's as cycling facilities. And the interesting evidence that came up that showed very clearly that a street was safer without the Shiro marking in it. I think that study is a little misleading in the sense that if you have a street that the lane is not wide, but cyclists are using it and it's in a slow moving urban place, I think it does make sense to stamp a Shiro in the roadway to make the drivers realize that there are going to be cyclists in the road. Right. But providing a Shiro, particularly on a higher speed road, well, first of all, we'd never do that. Yeah. Secondly, uh, providing a Shiro versus some sort of designated lane is usually just the cop out that the DOT makes you do to pretend that they've made bikes safe, but actually they haven't. But the funny story is when I read that article, I remember I was in Melbourne and I reached out on Twitter to my Twitter audience and I said, we need a new Shiro symbol that properly reflects the role of sharers in the roadway. And one person came up with one that showed like, a, you know, like a crime scene body paint or a, spade, <laughs> right. a cyclist splayed in the roadway. But the winner was something called the Prero. And I can show you a picture uh, of it. Everyone else has to go to our right, book. Right. Um, but it's basically two hands yeah. raised in prayer with the double arrow on top yeah. of the double chevron on top of it, as in, I pray that no one hits us in the- Yeah, in well, just the, so everyone does know, the sherrills are those chevron markings yeah. that are just painted on the road that imply that a bicycle and a car would then share that road. And the sherrill that he came up with, I'll say it again, is the hands folded in prayer underneath the chevrons, meaning, please don't hit me. It actually comes from Queen Anne Greenways, which I believe is in Nova Scotia, somewhere in Northeast Canada. What you have to do as a city planner is look at the street network systematically. A bike planning team might come in and say, well, we want everyone on Congress Street because that's the best street. But you look at a certain street and you say, well, actually, 
the car counts on that street are too high. But what about a bike lane next door on Washington Street, where actually you can remove two lanes and the traffic counts are such that you don't need those two lanes. So we can actually introduce a bike network onto this street in a way that doesn't reduce the car throughput. But then you take it a step further and say, wait a minute, more people are driving on Congress Street because of habit. But if there's any congestion on Congress Street, they're going to move over to Washington Street. And that's kind of like the image where the brain really starts lighting up. And you see this most often on main streets in communities. Often the main street is owned by the state DOT or a county DOT, which creates a struggle. The struggle can be won. But often the main street belongs to the city. In any case, many of the cities I work in, because they're not very big, they have one street that is their social heart, just one. And it's the only place where they're going to have significant pedestrian activity around the clock. It's the only place where they're going to have great sidewalk dining. It's the only place where they want to have the parade on the special days. The idea that that one street, particularly in a grid, right? In most American cities have a truly robust grid of streets. The idea that that one street has an obligation to handle 20,000 cars per day or 30,000 cars per day, or even 15, that's completely random. If people want to drive through your town without stopping, which most drivers are doing, then we should put them where they will not deprive your city of a robust social center. Right, right. And so an argument that I make successfully in many cities is, look, Main Street is your only chance to have a heart. Right. And we've got this robust network. We can shift drivers to the next street over. And it isn't like you even have to reconfigure the roadways. Drivers respond to where there's a line of cars in front of them and where there's no line of cars in front of them. Right. You mentioned Hammond, Indiana and the documentary, which is coming out at the end of the year. It's called Walkable USA. And people can find it on my website. My website's jeffspeck.com, J-E-F-F-S-P-E-C-K.com. You can find a link to the 12-minute short of that documentary. But in Hammond, they had about, I think, 18,000 cars per day on their main street. And we wanted to narrow it to two lanes so we could have much more robust landscaped, full of trees. And we convinced the city, because the city of Lancaster, California, had done the exact same thing. We convinced the city to ask drivers to just move a street over if all they want to do is blow through the downtown. And that project is almost complete now in terms of its construction. Cities understand this. And so if you look systematically at the whole street network, you can actually insert bike facilities where they belong, but with an understanding that the cars often need to go somewhere. I'll add one more caveat, which is, of course, everyone who's listening to this should know about the law of induced demand. And how the more lanes you provide for cars, the more cars arrive and that congestion is a constant. In congested systems, congestion is the constant. In that framework, there's also something called reduced demand. Reduced demand, like when the Embarcadero Freeway came down in San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah. And just story after story, when major automotive facilities are removed or narrowed, there is no congestion nightmare. People just adjust their behavior. And in smaller cities, it basically means that the rush hour might attenuate a little bit. You might leave early or come home early or whatever, just in order to not compete with that peak 20 minutes, right? Right. But the fact is that this Carmageddon that people always predict when you remove car infrastructure never comes. And that's an argument I don't use often in communities because people don't believe it. It's a fact. It's a fact of life. People don't believe it. And so I have much more success working systematically and showing how we will maintain the system throughput across the grid. 
but maybe right. we move the cars around a bit so that we off can of have, this street, right? Well, yeah, that, we that's often hard. what we hear, though, is that in Los Angeles, I'm speaking about Fountain Avenue, which is this famous east-west artery through the city. They're talking about in one small section, a mile and a half section, doing a road diet and taking it mm -hmm. from four lanes down to three, one in each direction with a center turn lane. And yep. the pushback that we're hearing so much from the people that live around there is that they're afraid that that traffic will then move to the neighborhood street just north or just south, because as they say, traffic is like water and it finds its most easy route. Well, Jan Gale also says that. He says through the 20th century, cars behave like water and they went where they were given more room and didn't go where they were given less room. Those citizens have either not been properly informed or they're choosing to ignore what they've been perhaps told. Both. Which is that a proper four to three lane road diet does not reduce the capacity of a street. That's one of those incredible counterintuitive issues that comes up in planning, which surprised even me right. to learn it. But I have a chart in Walkable City Rules of 23 different road diets that were done all around the U.S., four lane to three lane. What that chart shows is that the collective throughput, the volume of cars per hour across all those streets after the road diet was in fact even a little bit higher because four lane roads are not only very dangerous, they're also extremely inefficient. Yeah, They're dangerous because the fast lane is also the turn lane. They're inefficient because the turn lane is also the fast lane right. and or vice versa. I forget how to say that, but the lesson we need to share, the information we need to share with audiences, and I do share, is that when you take a four laner and make it a three laner, or even a two-laner that just has turn pockets at the key intersections, right. not reduce the throughput of that street. What you do do is make it a ton safer. You right. also make it much more successful for businesses because drivers aren't jockeying around each other to try and speed through an area. They actually are looking around it. So, you know, with Walkable City, I've really been trying to turn more and more people into advocates for great urbanism and urban design and great walkable places. And then with Walkable City Rules, it's all about arming folks who are in the trenches to have the most success that they could have. And I would direct your listeners to my website, jeffspeck.com, just to see all the resources. This isn't rocket science, but there's a bunch to learn. And then once you know it, anyone can do this work. Right, right. That's what has been great about street films and things like that, with mm -hmm. showing us videos of how the world changes when you make it safe for people to walk and to bike. You talk about the 21st century being the urban century and, you know, kind of people moving into the urban core. And that's what on Bike Talk we really agree with. And that idea of a 15 minute city where you can get everything you need within a 15 minute bike ride or a 20 minute walk or something. I'm curious in your mind, how has the pandemic changed that? Well, one of the chapters I had to add to Walkable City when I reissued it last year was about the impacts of COVID. And I think they've been positive and they've been negative, but they haven't changed the fundamental in the negative, which is a lot of people left the city right. for the suburbs and for the countryside. That blip, as you see after any similar significant disaster, if you will, that blip hasn't changed the fundamentals of why we are in cities and how we experience cities and the benefits that cities offer and I should say dense urban places offer. I was on the phone with a large real estate investment fund, multi-billion dollar fund that I advise just yesterday. And I said, how's it going? You know, you guys own a lot of office. A lot of offices are empty. How are you doing? And they said, well, actually we're doing pretty well because our offices are well located. And this is a company that's focused for years on what are the most competitive markets 
and where to place their real estate. But they right. said, it's our suburban stuff that's suffering. Wow. It's our walkable stuff that's thriving. Rents that they're getting and the occupancy they're getting in walkable places, it's the walkability of their portfolio that is determining the success of the buildings in their portfolio. Right. And it just goes to show that people gather together for a reason. Zoom is great, but in fact, it's not a substitute for in-person communication. There are different people you can read on this, evolutionary biologists and psychologists and others. But the verdict that they all seem to share is that we're fooling ourselves if we think that a Zoom meeting or an email exchange is any substitute for being in a place with people. One study found that the thing that you're most likely to do after shaking someone's hand in a business meeting is to find a way to smell your hand. <laughs> I never heard that. That's great. But that just shows, you know, our whole frontal lobe and the rest of our right. brain is basically a machine for rationalizing things that our brain stem has already determined, you know, our prehistoric right. dinosaur brain. Right. And it's the dinosaur brain that's really driving our choices in life, including who we vote for in politics. And that dinosaur brain is using every sense, not just smell, but also mobility. There's another scientist, and I talk about this in the new edition of Walkable City. Another scientist found that we actually create intelligence in our brains by moving through space and self-moving through space. We can't be moved through space. It's actually moving ourselves through space that makes our brains create intelligence. I'm articulating that really badly, but the point is there's a ton that we don't know about humans. And there's a ton that we don't know about cities, but we can say that humans and cities evolved together over about 10 millennia, specifically in response to human needs. And the denser we live, the faster we walk, the larger your city, the faster you walk. Right. The denser we live, the more patents per capita, not per city, but per capita, the more patents, the denser you are. William White tracked in the late middle 20th century how those corporations that moved out of New York into suburban office parks failed right. much worse in terms of stock value over the ensuing decades than those who stayed in the city. Right. This idea of BIPMs, bump into's per minute, that you <laughs> experience when you're in or truly- When you're remote. walking on the street, when you're riding your bike, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. You know, are- you were talking briefly about commercial real estate and the walkability making that more valuable. And you've also mentioned how it's true in residential real estate. Now there's a walkable score for apartments or neighborhoods, oh, yeah. and it raises the value of your property when your walking score is higher. Yeah. Every point on the hundred point scale of right. walk score is worth more than $2,000. Wow. We are going through these current heat bombs that are hitting the South and the Southwest. And it's often reported that it's the heat-related illness that kills so many people in these heat episodes. But I think you would argue differently about that, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't blame it just on the heat. Well, I wouldn't argue that they're not dying from the heat, but I would argue that right. clearly longer term, the heat is a function of our climate footprint, as most people would agree. And it's something that we have to mitigate as well as adjust for in the future. But more importantly, of course, that the way that our cities are designed, interestingly, impacts in surprising ways. So the number one thing you can do to make streets cooler, surprisingly, is to have buildings that are taller. <laughs> oh, wow. And I didn't expect to see this. Yeah. But the key technique for mitigating urban heat islands is to have canyons 
as streets, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what we were pushing for when we wanted light and air back in the early 20th century. And all these zoning plans created step back rules that helped in that regard. I wouldn't say that light and air are a bad thing, but I would say, just as a surprising anecdote for your listeners, that a principal determinant of cooler cities was taller buildings, not shorter ones. But that's maybe a little bit of a head fake around what is the most significant thing we can do right away, which is to plant trees. And will the impacts be immediate? No. Will the impacts be within a decade? Yes. And I've planted trees in communities less than 20 years ago where those trees are entirely shadowing the streets that they were put on top of. And, you know, a street with trees over it versus one without can change the local temperature easily by 20 degrees and the temperature on the pavement by even more than that. I had the uncomfortable honor of being asked to come into Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a couple of years ago, right after they had lost two thirds of their canopy, almost 700,000 trees in an hour when a derecho straight wind windstorm blew through sustained winds of 100 and 130 miles an hour, like for an hour. And they literally lost two thirds of their canopy. And I teamed up with landscape architects at Confluence and we made a plan called Relief, Relief Cedar Rapids to bring those trees back, working with the city and with a nonprofit called Trees Forever, which wonderfully happens to be located right in Cedar Rapids where they were needed. And I learned a ton about trees Not being a landscape architect, I learned a ton about trees working on this plan and came up with what we call the 10 relief rules. And a number of those are counterintuitive. One of them is you should never plant a small species tree where you can plant a big species tree. (laughs) What's the difference in a small species and big species? Well, like a Bradford pear versus a a white oak, right? A large tree produces 10 times the canopy and therefore 10 times the ecosystem benefits of a small canopy, yet it costs the same amount to plant. So we're pretty much only planting big trees wherever there's room for them. We're also only planting native trees wherever there's room for them. And as a city planner, I was kind of agnostic on the issue of native versus non-native until I read a guy named Doug Tallamy who wrote Nature's Best Hope. And he's an entomologist. And we're experiencing the sixth major extinction event in the history of humans on the planet right now. And it turns out that non-native trees and plants do not feed animals and insects. If you want to support the ecosystem, putting in any sort of tree or plant that's not native is actually undermining the quality of that ecosystem. So that was another interesting lesson to learn. But there is nothing in the urbanist's arsenal that is more undervalued and more able to improve the quality, the success, the sustainability of a place than street trees. Right. Los Angeles is full of palm trees, which I think give almost no shade and are not native. One of the things I say in Walkable City, the original, is unless your city has palm in the name, like Palm Springs or Palm Beach, you have no business planting palm trees right? because they provide almost none of the ecosystem benefits that you get from a big deciduous leafy tree. Right. I wonder if you could just go over a few things that are in Walkable City that I think our audience would like to hear. What are the four major reasons why you build a Walkable City? Yeah, the reasons, which is a whole other first section of the book, is basically health, wealth, and sustainability. So the reasons are, it's very clear that we're much healthier in Walkable Cities, that Walkable Cities actually are less wasteful of money, but also generate more wealth than non-walkable cities. And we have data for all of this. 
And then of course, the less you're driving, the smaller your carbon footprint. Even if you're driving an electric car, 80% of the pollution that comes from your conventional car is from tire and brake dust. So that's not going away. And it's worse with electric cars that are heavier. But the four steps of walkability, what I call my general theory of walkability, discusses the fact that most people in America do have cars and most people have the choice to drive. And that choice is heavily subsidized in ways that we could discuss. General tax revenues are paying about $10 to support every dollar that you spend driving. The question is, in this nation in which driving is so easy and so cheap, and in which most people own a car and it's sitting there in the driveway between them and everything, how do you create an environment in which they choose to walk? And to do that, the walk must be as good as the drive. And that means it needs to do four things simultaneously. It needs to be useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. And that framework then has allowed me to consolidate a whole series of prescriptions around the design of place and policies and maintenance around those places that cause them to make walking useful, to make walking safe, to make walking comfortable, and to make it interesting. So that's been the labor of my career. Jeff Speck, thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks for all your books. And I've been a follower of yours on Twitter for a long time. Can you quickly tell us how to find you on Twitter and your My website Twitter again? handle is at Jeff Speck, F-A-I-C-P, fellow of the American Institute of Certified Planners, F-A-I-C-P. I would direct people to the website, which I've already named. And if, if, you're, just, if you're just starting to get into this stuff, and more importantly, if you want to convince other people to get into it, then Walkable City is the book. If you're in the trenches doing the work, I'd direct you to Walkable City Rules. And if you're really interested in the difference between towns and sprawl and kind of the birth of this whole new urbanist movement, I would direct you to a suburban nation, which I wrote with my mentors, Andres and Liz. Cities are the most complex things that humans make and the biggest things that we make. And we know how to make them well. And we know how they've been made badly. And all we have to do is learn from our experience to make them great again. Jeff Speck, thanks a lot. Hey, it was my pleasure. The thing I love about Jeff is that he's been doing this for so long. He has the data to back up what he plans. You know, he goes into a city and he shows the people data of what happens when you change a car lane from four lanes down to three lanes, that it still handles the same amount of traffic, that the tax receipts oftentimes go up. I also loved one of the things he said about helmet laws. You know, people think that they're passing helmet laws as a way of making biking safer for everybody. But really what it does is it keeps some people from biking. Like what he said in Seattle, that was partly why the bike share program failed there. In New Zealand. The problem is that cars are interacting with people walking in on bikes. And so we say you really need to get off your phone as a pedestrian and you're using the road, or you really need to wear bright colors as a cyclist and wear a helmet. Yeah. But what you really have to do is get off the phone when you're driving your car (laughs) and stop speeding. That makes me think of this article I just read in the LA Times, Nick, about how Vision Zero is failing and that actually traffic violence is on the rise. It's at a 10-year high. More people are being, being hit by cars than ever before. I'm sure it's everywhere they have Vision Zero because it's a great vision if you have the will to do it, to make it happen. Well, that's the thing, the will to do it, the political will to do it, and the ability to answer the NIMBY complaints about making the streets safe. If we think that the future and robot cars are the solution to safe streets, 
They're not. Galen Mook has an interview with Ken McLeod coming up, and he's the policy director of the League of American Bicyclists. And he talks about the number one victim of robot car crashes is people riding bikes. And the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is reluctant to put these bicyclist emergency braking features in cars, even though they have them in Europe. They seem to be not wanting to stand up to the car lobby. It's a little bit like those side guards on trucks, that they don't want to stand up to the trucking industry either and implement a law that says semi-trucks have to have side guards. Here's that interview. On the phone with us now, we have Ken McLeod. He is the policy director for the League of American Bicyclists. He's been there quite a while. I've worked with Ken for a long time over the years, but I'm very happy to have Ken on the phone. We're going to talk autonomous vehicle regulations today. How are you, Ken? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time and coming on Bike Talk. All the stuff you're doing at the League is also impressive, but this one rose to the top mainly because we've been getting some action alerts and there's been some conversations on the Hill, I know, around it. But the main priority right now is autonomous vehicles are hot. They're moving in terms of investments happening. Companies are coming up with new technology, but yet there's not much oversight, as I understand it, happening in Congress. So give us a little bit of the lay of the land here. What's going on with AVs? Yeah, as you said, there's no federal regulation of automated vehicles. Automated vehicles you might see deployed in San Francisco or other places and kind of discussed in the news are vehicles that meet all existing federal regulations for human-driven vehicles, but just are driven by a computer instead of a human. But one thing that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has done is issued what is a general order requiring certain companies that they have notified of this requirement to report incidents between automated vehicles and other vehicles, people, either biking or walking or anything like that, that results in a crash. There are certain reporting requirements for fully automated vehicles, like the cruise or Waymo vehicles on San Francisco streets and other reporting requirements for vehicles with advanced driver assistance systems like Tesla's full self-driving package. But that means we finally have some tiny insight into those crashes from our National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that we haven't had before that general order was issued. Everything is happening at the state level. Interesting. So I guess not to cut you off, I'm sorry, but why did it take so long and such teeth pulling in order to get that data? What did you find in that data? So the data is a requirement. When entities are aware of crashes, they have to report it for those fully automated crashes. And what we found is that in the reported crashes with people, something like 70% of those are crashes with people biking. So people biking seem to be very overrepresented in that limited data that we have. And that really points to the need for automated vehicle developers to address bicyclist safety. Yeah, that's startling. Is this, I imagine, what would be like vulnerable road users as a category? Yeah. So it's basically non-motorist person walking, non-motorist person biking, and non-motorist other is, I think, the three non-motorist categories they have. That's crazy. So, okay, 70% of the non-motorist crashes involving AVs are with a bicyclist. What insight does that give you in terms of how this AV technology is taking safety into consideration for people on bikes? Well, it's somewhat positive in that there are few reported crashes with non-motorists overall, but it does suggest that cyclists are more difficult for the automated vehicles to understand and deal with. 
And that, to me, suggests that we should have more public data on how these vehicles do detect people on bikes. We don't know if it's a detection error or something in their algorithms about how they react to people biking. So having more transparency there would be really helpful to understand what they're struggling with and how appropriate regulatory framework could address it. Fascinating. Yeah. Are you getting a sense that there's pushback from the technology companies who don't want to share their algorithms or really kind of let you peek behind the hood? Yeah. I mean, we've had some really great partnership with automated vehicle developers. Cruise was a sponsor of our National Bike Summit this past year and signed on to our six principles for safe interactions with cyclists. But the nature of their detection systems and algorithms are a very proprietary thing to them that they want to safeguard as a developer. So it's difficult to get beyond kind of agreement in principle oftentimes. Yeah, interesting. So as I understand it, reading from your action alerts, the ask really is on the federal regulatory scale. Is that correct? Yeah. So NHTSA has been thankfully very active on things that are more like advanced driver assistance systems, like automatic emergency braking. So they've had four different proposals in the past year related to vehicles, with I think three of those involving automatic emergency braking. Really great steps forward for pedestrian safety, but every single time they included bicyclists and have yet to give a timeline for when bicyclist safety might be addressed in those proposals. Interesting. So what are you asking for? What would you like to see from the league's perspective here of the feds taking action? We want bicyclists to be included. We don't want to be an afterthought. We don't want to be something that is addressed after a tragedy. We think that bicyclist automatic emergency braking has been tested in Europe since 2018. And there's no reason for America to drag its feet and wait to test when there is an existing test that is well utilized by other countries already out there. Gotcha. So we have some good examples to lean on. So this shouldn't be that hard of a lift. Yeah, I mean, that's our perspective. In NHTSA's proposals, they have kind of said that they are struggling to replicate those tests. But I think that just calls for them to work harder, work with those European partners and other countries that do bicyclist testing. It's been proposed or implemented in, I think, five of the eight global new car assessment programs. So there's a lot of experts out there who know how to do it. And if America doesn't have those experts now, we need to get those experts and work with those experts so that we can do it too. I love it. And just for audience's edification here, NHTSA is a National Highway Transportation Safety Association. Is that correct? Almost. Traffic safety. Transportation would make more sense. It'd be great if they got rid of the highway as well. But you know (laughs) what it is. I love it. Okay, cool. All right. So I'm looking here right now. I have your blog up about the six guidelines for safe AV interactions. And these are great. And we'll link to them on our site. And I encourage everybody to check them out. But one I want to dive into is point number two, which you have here, which is typical cyclist behavior should be expected by autonomous vehicles. I'm curious what you really mean by typical cyclist behavior, not to be poking a bear here, but you know, we hear in the advocacy sphere of, oh, this cyclist came out of nowhere, or I didn't see that even from a human driver. So what kinds of things would you expect an autonomous algorithm to be looking for that would be, quote, typical for a cyclist to behave? Yeah, so that one specifically, when we were developing the guidelines with automated vehicle developer, they were interested in the safety stop behavior of cyclists yielding at stop signs, but not stopping at stop signs, which I think at least eight states allow. So that's the kind of typical behavior that cyclists may do that is not typical for a motorist. So they need to know that that behavior might occur and be prepared to react safely to it. 
Yeah, that's a good example. So there's traffic laws that pertain separately to cyclists as they would for a motorist, as an example. Anything else that a cyclist does that you think might be tricky for an AV to pick up on? Another thing that a motorist can't really do because their vehicles are so large would be like undertaking. So passing on the right side of a vehicle when vehicles are moving slowly or perhaps there's a bike lane there and they're going to the front of uh, intersection queue. That's something that motorists can't do that bicyclists do regularly. So that's the type of thing that the automated vehicle system needs to be aware might happen and needs to be prepared to react safely to. I get that. Funny anecdote. I'm in Boston for this call right now, and we were doing some testing out here in the seaport. And one of the funny examples is that there are seagulls out here that are so large that they block the lane and the autonomous vehicle stops sinking their pedestrian. So we actually have the AVs literally just jamming up traffic because there's a seagull in its way. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what to take on that. Certainly, we want these vehicles to be cautious. That's an important part of them being safe. But that's the type of thing where they need to be prepared to react to the real world. And they're currently working through that. So since you're kind of on the inside, what's your, I wouldn't say timeline, but what's your expectation of these kinks getting worked out and actually having AVs in normal real life out in daily use? Um, The standard industry line is usually five or 10 years. So I'll say five or 10 years. I think it's a little bit surprising how much progress they've made in the last couple of years deploying in places like San Francisco. They recently got approval to operate 24-7 with paying passengers just from the public. So that's a really big step for the industry and might say that that 5 to 10-year timeline is more likely than it was 5 to 10 years ago. Wow. Anything else about AVs you want to bring up? I think it's really important to think about automated vehicles as a spectrum. So there are things like advanced driver assistance systems that many vehicles have today. And the things that automated vehicles can do, many of those things can be done through advanced driver assistance systems where the human is still ultimately in control, but things like following the speed limit or braking for cyclists are semi-automated. So that period of semi-automation using that lower end of the spectrum and getting that technology into more vehicles so that vehicles are safer, easier to drive, and safer for everyone I think is a real key that can happen sooner than five to 10 years and sooner than there are widespread automated vehicles. Yeah, I'm kind of seeing this already in terms of side warnings that pop on on rear view mirrors or side view mirrors when there's an instruction to the side or backup cameras, which I think are now required on new automobiles. Is this kind of being rolled into the industry? Yeah, some automakers make a really big selling point of it. I've seen some people distinguish between safety features and convenience features, and some automakers might want to sell convenience features more than safety features. I think something like automatically braking for a cyclist is more of a safety feature than a convenience feature. Hands-free driving on a highway is probably more of a convenience feature than a safety feature. Yeah, that's a really good distinction. I think for our listener audience, too, I think it really hits home because our goal is, of course, that we all survive as we're heading home. Absolutely. And my last question here, too, and this parlays back into some interviews we did with your colleague, Karen Whitaker, who's also policy lead on the federal level here, when we were talking about trucks and truck side guards and some of the safety features that are happening on large vehicles and the deficiencies there. Are you seeing similar ticks in the conversations around autonomous vehicles that we're trying to push for in terms of either side guards on trucks or, as I mentioned earlier, backup cameras on personal automobiles or kind of other ways of regulating the industry 
And I should preface that question by saying that one of the major concerns that I hear from constituents around here is the size of vehicles is getting to be unwieldy. The distractions within vehicles is becoming a major problem. So just wondering what other Venn diagrams this conversation with autonomous vehicles has in some of the other traffic safety and vehicle safety conversations. Yeah, I mean, the auto industry doesn't like regulation of any part of the vehicles, really. So I think resistance to regulation on automated vehicles isn't distinct from that. One thing I have heard in conversations is we aren't going to get regulations on vehicle size necessarily or vehicle design, but these advanced technologies will solve those safety issues anyways. So in the case of truck side guards, instead of doing the side guard mandate, truck companies will say, well, we can have cameras and we can have detection systems, but they also oppose that requirement. So we need to make sure when people say, we won't do that, but we'll do this to address the same issue, that they actually do that. So I keep hearing technology as the thing that will solve safety. And if we're going to keep hearing that, we need them to actually do it. So what can our audience do to help out the League of American Bicyclists? What's our call to action today? So we have been organizing a sign-on letter for advocacy organizations throughout the country. We're trying to get to all 50 states. So if people know bicyclist organizations in South Dakota, North Dakota, or Alaska, the last three states that we are looking for, it'd be great to be connected with them. We're trying to show that this is an issue with widespread support, that bicyclist safety should be included in vehicle safety. So we're just trying to get as many groups as possible to sign on to our letter to NHTSA to say that it's long past time to kind of waffle on when it might happen and actually commit to bicyclist safety being included in their regulations. I love it. I think that's an easy ask. We'll put this out. We have listeners from across the whole continent here, so hopefully we'll get a tick or two here, Ken. That'd be great. Well, I appreciate your time. I have one last question for you as a little bit of a curveball. This is something I like to ask all of our interviewees, but just as a change of pace, First off, I appreciate all your advocacy, and I know that it's the most serious of conversations you're having because we're talking about saving lives out there and tackling one of the most entrenched of industries, the auto industry. But why we do this work? Because we love biking. So my question for you, Ken, is what is your bike joy? Oh, what is my bike joy? I live two blocks from the Roanoke River Greenway, which recently had about a maybe two mile section completed. That means that there are now 13 continuous miles throughout the city of Roanoke. So my bike joy is just taking a casual ride on that greenway right by my house. Brings a smile to my face to see all the other people out there enjoying it. Amen. Well, I hope you can get out and enjoy a little bit today. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Ken McLeod, who's the policy director of the League of American Bicyclists, who's doing some amazing work out there in D.C., fighting for all the good fights for all 50 states. So, Ken, thank you so much for all the hard work. And I look forward to seeing you at the Bike Summit at the very least, if not before. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, it's a good thing we have the League of American Bicyclists and Karen Whitaker, the deputy executive director, who's been on the show a few times, and Ken McLeod, the policy director. They're holding the fire under the NHTSA, which is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which seems like their preference is to not do anything about things like truck side guards, which would save cyclists and pedestrians, or putting bicyclist emergency braking in cars. They just would slow walk it and not do anything. Well, it seems like the League of American Bicyclists has become the all-powerful bike lobby. The prophecy has been fulfilled. Oh, hey, Nick, we have to introduce Lily. Yeah, she's the bureau chief of Western Massachusetts. And Lily, you're editing and reporting and researching. Well, we're really glad to have you. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
And you know, Nick, it's really good that she's here because I'm going to be gone for three weeks. I'm going to go to Barcelona for a week or so, and then I'm going to walk the Camino de Santiago in northern Spain. I'm going to check out the super blocks. Barcelona is one of those places that seems to have had a transformation. The city has really changed to a much quieter, much more civil, much more livable city with bike lanes and bike share programs. It's really wonderful. So that's our show, eh? That's our show. If you like the show, like us on Facebook and Instagram and Spotify and Apple Music. It really does help the show. And if you want to support the show, you can go to Patreon and support us there. And Patreon is on our website at biketalk.org. You can also email us there. Right. If you have any questions for mechanics like Anne-Marie Drolet, or if you have any interviews you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks, Nick. Ride safe. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and run all around, run all around.